Morning. Uh, it's a joy, privilege to uh, come to you with God's word. So, would you join me in prayer? Uh, ask God to bless this time. Lord, we are dependent. I am dependent upon you. We're dependent upon your Holy Spirit to enlighten our minds to your most wonderful word. Guide us into truth. Show us uh, where we lack. Challenge us, Lord, and then bring hope, grace, and mercy. Because, uh, Lord, without you, we could do nothing. And we acknowledge and declare our dependence. Um, so bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may or may not know, but I fix and build things. That's what I do for a job. Um, I'm a carpenter. I do anything and everything that will pay the bills for the most part. Um, I just recently finished a job reciting a house in Seguin. Now, this house uh, needed a lot of work. Um, it was old. It was leaning. Um, there was all kinds of issues with it as I went along to put on new siding, new windows of this house. Well, as uh, as I got to know the owners and started chatting with them, as I already said yes to the job, they, they told me a story. It says when they bought this land 35 years ago to have this house built, um, the farmers in the area, because it was uh, on five acres, it was part of a larger uh, ranch that they kind of par- uh, kind of gave off and sold off. And they said, the farmer said, well, yeah, that's... We, we know about that hill um, when we would farm and uh, send our plows out and do all that. Yeah, that's Rattlesnake Hill. And I'm hearing this story as I am just into and said yes to this job. And I'm thinking, great, what does that mean? Rattlesnake Hill. He says, yeah, the first year um, that I, that we lived, my family and I lived here, I killed about 50 rattlesnakes. This was 35 years ago. I'm thinking, like, might as well have been yesterday. At this point, and I'm I'm kind of overwhelmed all of a sudden. Not only is the project and the scope of the work large, and I'm doing this by myself. Now it's called Rattlesnake Hill, and every time I show up, I'm thinking this is Rattlesnake Hill. I, I have my hammer in my hand, not in my pouch. And I'm ready uh, for this. Just considering I had to uh, climb under the house, nothing ever happened. I think the one snake we found, my son Jack was there. He picked it up, and it was a garter snake, and I wouldn't do that even. But life is full of times when we say to ourselves, what did I get myself into? What have I gotten myself into? Those kind of moments. Can you think of one? Maybe recently, maybe it's a, a job that requires more of you, that takes more skill, and you don't feel uh, up for the job, and you're like, what did I get myself into? Accepting this job. Maybe it's enlisting in the military. Remember when I enlisted in the military, I thought to myself at the moment that the government owned me, I thought, what did I get myself into? Or getting married, or hopefully that's not the case what you get yourself into. Um, or when you had your first child, uh, you're thinking, I mean, the first one after, and we have five, after number five, it's like, I know what I'm getting myself into. Uh, but the first one, you're like, I don't know what I got myself into. Well, we come to a passage this morning where at, at first glance, as we even look at it, as you, I'm sure you're familiar with it, you're going to, Maybe after we end our time or after we expound this text, you're going to say to yourself, I'm a Christian, and what has Jesus got me into? What have I gotten myself into? What, what is this thing called? Not only am I saved, but He's calling us to more than just knowing that we have eternal life. What, what does He have for us in, in this life? So would you open your Bibles to Matthew 28, 19-20. Matthew twenty-eight, 
19, verses 19 and 20. We come to what is often known as the Great Commission. For those of you who have been in church for a long time, you're well aware of these words. I would even guess to say that they're probably not on your coffee mugs. There might be other dear scriptures that you've put on there. If these words aren't familiar to you, think of mission statement. Uh, most businesses or organizations, they run their business from a mission statement. This is what we're trying to accomplish. Or the military would call them marching orders. These are marching orders that the commander tells us, this is what you're going to accomplish. This is what the battle you're going to fight. Well, you can use any of those terms or words for what is normally called the, the Great Commission. And it it puts away any doubt of what us as believers are supposed to be doing on this earth. He he tells us, he gives us our marching orders, he gives us the missional mandate, he gives whatever you want to call it, the mission statement for the church. It's right here. So let's read it and then let's unpack it. Starting in verse 19, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. This is the word of the Lord. So if we look quickly and unpack the, these, fir- these two verses here, you're going to find a main verb in the text. This main verb is, as you'll notice in verse 19, make disciples. And what does this mean? Uh, let me just put it simply and plain for you. It means to lead people to follow Jesus. To lead people to do what you yourself are doing. If you remember early on in Matthew, uh, we see Jesus come to the disciples, to a few of the disciples as they're on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. They have their, they're mending their nets. And Jesus, what does Jesus tell them? He says, leave your nets and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They follow him for three years. They, they learn from the rabbi, the master, all that it is to, what it means to follow Jesus. They, they learn from his teaching. They see him do miracles. They know and learn that he can forgive sin. So making disciples is calling others by the declaration of the gospel to follow Jesus. That's what it means to make disciples. And so that's the, that's the main command here. It's the main verb. Well, in the other part of verses 19 and verse 20, Jesus gives some other direction. He gives three ways that we can carry this out. You and me to carry this out uh, of making disciples. You first notice in verse 19 with me, he says, go, therefore. That's one of them. Now, in the Greek, the word go is an interesting word. It means go. Yeah. It means that it requires movement. That to make disciples requires to move our feet, to go a direction, to be strategic of noticing and thinking about what is, who's in need? Where do I have to go to, to find those people who are in need? Who, who's lost? Who, who are my neighbors? Who, who's around me? What nations, foreign nations are out there that need the gospel? And at the end of the day, this word go means go. That to make disciples requires movement. So that is one of the ways to carry out what it means to make disciples. Another way is, as he continues on to say, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Then he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son 
and of the Holy Spirit. So we are to carry the name of the triune God where he is either not named or he's ignored. So he says, this is who you belong to, disciple. This is who you worship. And you are to take his name, the triune God that distinguishes from any other lesser false gods in the world and declare who he is. That he, that you bear the seal of you belong and identify with this God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the triune God. And this act of baptizing, baptizing being an act someone does to declare their allegiance to a new Lord. That you're to call them to do this, this act of going into water where they will then share and declare their allegiance to a new Lord. See, back then they would have to declare Caesar as Lord. And they would have to renounce him as Lord and say, I have a different and new allegiance and it's Jesus. So this act of baptism, they, it could have meant their martyrdom. It could have meant their death at the very act of doing this, this declaration. It's saying, I identify and belong to God and his people. It wasn't an unmistakable act that marked a person as a follower of Jesus. A declaration that a person's life, identity, and priorities were centered on Jesus and his mission. That's what it declared. In fact, in that word, baptism, in the name of, that, that's what it entails. That's what you would call people, hey, you follow Jesus and then declare that you belong to Him and that your life is centered upon Him. Renouncing sin, renouncing the false gods that you once worshipped and saying, Jesus is my Lord now. This is my new allegiance. This is who I surrendered to. So we're to go. We're to baptize. And then he says, verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So this is not simply make new converts. This is make disciples that we are to call people in faith and repentance to Jesus. We are to say, declare your allegiance to him. And there you stick with him. You're to stick with him and to teach them. To build them up in the faith, to show them the word of God, to teach them the faith that was handed down to you, and to teach them obedience and to follow the Lord's commands for the purpose of holiness and for being set apart. This takes investing. This takes time. Because, let's face it, I'm still being discipled. I'm still being poured into. I still need investing, and so do you. And I just want to wrap all of what I just set up in this understanding. That this is all within the context of the body of Christ. That this is to be carried out as a people. This is not an individualistic command. This is a command given to a people. That we are to carry this out together. We need each other. And we need to invest in each other's lives. We need to encourage each other. We need to um, do this mission, this command given to us by Jesus to go into the world and make disciples. We need to do it together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Let us not miss this one point that uh, I, we read over but have not touched yet. We're going to see the scope of this work. Notice he says, therefore, in verse 19, go and make disciples of all nations. 
All nations. This word in the Greek means ethnos, of every tribe, tongue, and nation, every people group in the world. If I remember correctly, I read about this, that the different kinds of people groups or ethnicities that are present are like 11,500. And most of them have not been reached. That there is still in the world, there's people groups who have no gospel access. You see, we, there's people in our country that have not been reached by Christ, but, and you would say they're lost, but they have every opportunity to, uh, whether TV or, TV or radio or all the churches are on every corner or Christians they work with, they have access to the gospel. But there are nations that do not have access. I think it was in uh, Yemen, I heard, uh, the country there that, there's 8 million people and about, they say, they estimate, some mission agency estimates that there are about 30 Christians in this country of 8 million people. Think about that. So this call that Jesus is, has, has put upon us is not just for going to our next door neighbor, though that's very much included, but it's also going to the nations. So the scope is wide ranging. It goes from your next door neighbor, your coworker to the nations. That's the scope of, of this call that he has upon us. Why well, wonder if unintentionally we give ourselves distance to the Great Commission? Because maybe you hear it like this. This is a, uh, Pastor Derek brought this to my attention. I forgot about it. I know, I've heard of it before. But it's this ad by this explorer, uh, Ernest Shackleton, who went to Antarctica and, um, years ago. This is the ad. Men wanted for hazardous journey. Small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honored recognition in case of success. I wonder if we hear the Great Commission and that's what we hear. <laughs> and, and we put a distance. It's like nothing that would touch my, my comfort or my security or my, my pocketbook. Nothing that would cause sacrifice or cost. Uh, no, thank you. That's just for the elite. That's for those who are really called. That's for the foreign missionaries. I mean, if we're honest, we look at church history and we see that this is dirty, messy Costly, risky work involved in obeying this command. And sadly, we limit our obedience to it. So how can I get us to move our feet to get on the field and play? Because I believe this is, I just don't want you to see it as a, a command, though it is. I want you to see it as an invitation. That Jesus is inviting us to participate in this work. He's saying, come on, get on the field and let's move the ball down the field with me. Let's go make some touchdowns for my glory. He's inviting us to do this. I could do it by guilt. I, I could. I, I can name the, all the lost and I can give you the stats and you can feel real guilty and I can really, you know, get you to go up and do that, but that will only last for a little bit. Only work for a little while. But I want to compel you because I believe this is what the text is doing. It's compelling us. The task that we just covered briefly, command, commanded by us uh, from Jesus, is tethered to truth. That bigger than the greatness of the commission is the truth that is presented around this text. This text is not alone in the context. 
we're going to see verses 19 through 20 is sandwiched. It's called the Jesus sandwich, okay? That around the Great Commission, there are wonderful, great, big truths. On one side, we're going to see the basis of our obedience. And on the other, we're going to see the hinge of our obedience to this command of Jesus. First, we go and make disciples of all nations based on certain truths. The command exists because truth exists before it. Notice in verse 19 with me, it says, Go therefore. That, that is, the, is telling us that there's a basis to the call upon our lives. That there is foundational truths that we must understand that have come before that make the Great Commission possible. So truth number one, if you're taking notes. We go and make disciples because Jesus has risen from the dead. Look at verse 16 and 17. Read it with me. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. If you saw someone rise from the dead and speak to you, would you listen differently? How would you feel? Would you take that person seriously? Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of put it this way for those who like these movies, the Marvel movies, right? I mean, if you're into that. But imagine if one of the, like in real life, those fictional characters became life and you're standing face to face with Captain America, right? Who has this superhuman strength. And he would demonstrate all that he could do with that superhuman strength. And you're like, whoa, don't you think that would change reality? It would. You're, you would start to think, what is possible then? So these disciples are standing, let's get this, get the scene here, before Jesus. He, he brings them away to this mountain, it could be Mount Hermon, about 9,000 feet, it could be Mount Tabor in the area of the Sea of Galilee, and he directs them to this place, and they see him. And this is one of many times during 40 days where they would see Jesus through many infallible proofs. They would know he would eat, he would walk through walls uh, with doors locked in the upper room, he would meet all over the place with him, with them. And they see Jesus. This is not a normal occurrence. And because of this, something shifted in the disciples. We see the book of Acts. We see these timid, fearful men become bold, courageous leaders for the gospel. And what changed is that they saw the risen Jesus. You see, we just celebrated Easter last Sunday. And this is a truth we must never forget, but we do. And that's why I think it's important, just like the disciples here, that we gather together on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, to sing His praises, to hear the Word of God, to fellowship with one another, take part in communion, so that we're reminded of what Jesus actually did, and that would embolden us to go and be witnesses of what He has done. Sunday is so important. Our gathering together so that we would scatter out into the world. Re-aim our hearts upon Him. Truth number two, the basis of our going and making disciples is this. Jesus has all authority. Read verse 18 with me. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Let me say this. With this verse in play, it doesn't matter what comes next. He could say, Christian, church, whole Presbyterian, I want you to go hunt unicorns in the desert wearing red tuxedos. He could say that 
Him being having all authority, we would obey. So whatever comes next on the basis of His authority and His resurrection, we obey. He is the boss. We do what He says. So whatever He says next, we say, yes, Lord. Here's the blank check of my life. Write in whatever you want. I will go. Is there a willingness in you like that? You see, more than seeing the great commission as being great, I want you to see Jesus as greater. And that is what compels you to see how beautiful and awesome He is. Daniel 7.14 foretold of Jesus said this, And to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. In His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This is Jesus who's crowned with glory and honor. All things are put under His feet. That every authority and angel and principality and power is submitted to Him. That He sits at the right hand of the throne of God. That He has absolute power and supremacy. Nothing can rival Him. He has all authority and rule. All the universes and cosmos will do as He says. Not one atom is outside of His control. Everything belongs to Him. Everything is under Him. And nothing can rival His throne. And Jesus says, and He wants us to be reminded of of this, Christian, fellow saint, beloved, I have all authority. No matter the obstacles that may come your way in obeying this commission. No matter the fearful things that you'll stand before. No matter the the obstacles that may be in your way. No matter even the fear that you have in yourself. Remember, I'm above it all. So all of a sudden, Jesus wants to, in a sense, know this. He, He wants you to know this. The weight of this command is shouldn't be on your shoulders. It's upon His. The weight of this command, the task, is upon Him. Place it on Him. He wants to put us at ease. He's not wanting to yell at us and tell us what to do. So don't hear His command in that way. Though we are to obey His command, He wants us to put us at ease in the obedience of the command and take the weight off our shoulders. It's all up to Him. If that wasn't enough, there's another side of the Jesus sandwich, if you could call it that. Not only His highness, His greatness, but His closeness and His eminence. We looked at His transcendence, that He's the resurrected, authoritative Lord. King of kings, Lord of lords. But let's see His, His nearness to us. It's the hinge of our obedience. That our obedience is dependent upon something. So the Great Commission is dependent upon two guarantees. If you're taking notes, look at verse 20. Two guarantees. The last part of verse 20 says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Listen, Christian, the first guarantee he gives us is the guarantee of his presence. He is with you, dear Christian. What a great comfort this is. That you are not alone. That He doesn't send you out on your own. He sends you out with His presence. When you finally decide to knock on your neighbor's door, He's right there with you. 
When you invite that family that you know doesn't know Christ, that uh, maybe they're a large family, I don't know, whoever that is that you have in your mind right now, understand, He's right there with you to dine with you. When you step out of your comfort zone, and I know we serve at the Bavarian Manor, uh, or any places like that, and you reach out to the families there, you cross the track, so to speak, to go into those neighborhoods that are, aren't, aren't so safe, just know and rest assured that Jesus is with you. When you know God's calling even even to a short or long-term missions trip overseas, and He may call one of you or some of you to that, just know His promise, the promise of His presence is continual to the end of the age. Just remember, remember that truth. That's a guarantee. You can bet on it. That the Lord is by your side. Paul in Acts 18, when he was about to go into Corinth, he was fearful. There's the, the religious leaders chasing him, wanting to arrest him and put him to death for the, all the turmoil and upsetting of the, the cities that he was doing as he was passed through and preached the gospel. And he comes to the city limits of Corinth and he is afraid and Jesus shows up and he says, Paul, do not be afraid. I am with you. At the end of Second Timothy, when we know he's about to be martyred for the faith, Paul said this to young Timothy, he said this, Everyone deserted me, but the Lord stood with me and he strengthened me. That's a promise. The second guarantee, his guaranteed victory. It's implied in verses 16 through 20. His resurrection, his authority and presence determines the outcome. He didn't fail in accomplishing our salvation and he won't fail the mission. He won't. So... Get this, this is awesome. He, we are engaged on a no-fail mission. There's not a maybe, you know, commanders go into war, they have their troops, and there's no guarantee of victory, but we go from victory. He, he already defeated death. What other greater enemy could there be? Governing authorities? Paul knew this. They're nothing, right? That there is, should be for us, believer, no room for pessimism, but optimism. That we have every reason to be positive in this mission. That we have every reason to know that this is a no-fail mission, and that should give us courage. And this, promises, this promise holds until the mission is finished. He says, I am with you always to the end of the age. And that's how we know that this, this passage is for us as well. That it carries on that we are here because of the no-fail mission. We are here because of obedient saints before us. Whole Presbyterian exists because of faithful saints who have shed their blood in the past. And the mission will continue as we desire to give ourselves to it. Through the planting of churches, through the spread of the gospel, through the fame of Jesus' name, that's our call. And so since... We have every reason to obey Jesus' words here. The question left is, how are you going to carry out this command in your life? Will people come to mind that don't know Christ in your mind? How can you enter their lives? How can you invite them over for dinner? How can you begin those spiritual conversations? How can you start those relationships? 
How can you familiarize yourself with the nations and where there's places with no access to the gospel? Who can you begin to pray for? What neighborhood can your community reach out to? Your community group reach out to? How can you begin supporting missionaries financially? How can we as a church carry out this practically? Those are now the questions. Because we have every reason to obey. Jesus is alive. He's been given all authority. And he promises to be with you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we admit, I admit my, my fear at the, the overwhelming nature of this command. The in and of myself, Lord, there remains in me no boldness, Lord, to, to go do bold things, to go to places where the gospel is confrontational and rejection is a possibility. So Lord, would you remind us of the, these truths? May we see and savor the Lord. Uh, may we see him uh, with the knowledge of he, he's risen from the dead and he's on the throne. May we live in light of this fact, knowing that this mission will not fail and that you are with us forevermore. Help us, Lord. And may we play the part as you invite us to get on the field and take the ball and make some touchdowns. We ask for your help, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.